0: scripture reading for tonight comes from Psalm 23 and then John 10, 11 through 18. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolves coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This charge I have received from my Father. The word of the Lord.
1: There are some scriptures that will forever be in the King James translation in the minds of the world. Of course, there's John 3.16 with its whosoever believeth, and then, of course, the Psalm 23. I mean, any other translation of Psalm 23 just seems like it kind of weakens it. The Lord is my shepherd, so I don't really need anything else is not really the same as the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. My mind even has an English accent when I just think of the words. And it, and it has this, this pastoral imagery in the psalm. It seems like medieval. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. I've always kind of pictured an English banquet in a castle type of thing, you know, like with goblets. Like I'm holding a goblet and toasting the Lord. But the strange thing is like when I picture this in my mind, me at the banquet, at the table with the goblet, I'm alone. I'm by myself. Like, this psalm is so weirdly narcissistic. The Lord is my shepherd. Why not the Lord is our shepherd? I have this crazy image of like a Sunday school film strip that plays every time I read this psalm. The Lord, picture Jesus as the good shepherd. I know what is Jesus doing in the psalms, but he's there. Um, The Lord is walking beside a little blonde-haired kid with short pants and a cap. And then the Lord, Jesus, right, gestures to the green grass. And the kid lays down on it for a little nap. And the kid gets up and, and the shepherd takes him by the hand and takes him down by the still water. And he has his rod and his staff to protect the little kid. But when I f- stop the film strip and I think about it, I am perplexed. Why do I want to sleep in the grass? Like, what's so great about being beside still water? And like, what is the difference between a rod and a staff? Does the Lord need them both? There's like one in each hand? Like, what does he do with them when he's preparing the banquet for me? Does he have to like hold both of them awkwardly in one hand while he does it? Or does he lean them up against the banquet table? I don't know. The image of this personal Lord following around an individual, attending to their needs... A place to sleep, food, water, protection, seems more like a dog than God, more like a servant than a shepherd. The idea of a personal assistant lord is clearly the result of recontextualizing the interpretation, the result of hundreds of years of cultural conditioning, making it nearly impossible to recover anything close to what the original audience heard. What is interesting, what is as interesting as how our culture reads this text is the way that this text reads us. It reflects back our own self-obsession that we would paint God as our valet. What does it say about a culture that would find the notion of a personal attendant Lord even appealing? The Lord is my personal shopper. I will have many fashionable choices, He maketh me lie down on high-thread-count Egyptian cotton. (laughs) He brings me the still water, not sparkling. He restores my credit stores. He turns traffic lights green to prove he's with me. Even though my commute is horrible, I do not fear texting drivers, for you are with me. Your management of traffic lights and parking spaces, they comfort me. You make sure my banquet is free-range, organic, and locally sourced. My oil stocks rise, my wine cellar overflows. Surely goodness will and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in a gated community for my whole life long. Now, I know, I'm sure that uh, if I were like a shepherd or lived in like shepherd economy times or like shepherd-raising cultures, it would probably sound very different to me. Or if I was a sheep. If I was a sheep, it, it would sound... I'm sure really very, very different. But then I might be thinking like, hey, where are all the other sheep? Why am I just here alone with this shepherd? Where's the flock? Or that banquet, yeah, it looks good, but how am I supposed to get up on that chair and eat it? And hey, shepherd, I can't even reach the table. And do you see opposable thumbs? How am I going to hold that goblet? This is all hoof. And why does he have both that rod and the staff? Of course, if I were a sheep, there would be some question about my ability to even reflect on my own reality, but um, I digress. The uh, shepherd and sheep metaphor shows up in other places in the scripture, even hundreds and hundreds of years later in the New Testament. And I guess because the sheep economy is still in full swing, it works. But wherever it shows up, it always seems to me a little um, problematic, like today's text from the Gospel of John. See, in John's Gospel, Jesus really talks a lot, and he repeats himself a lot. And um, he can be kind of confusing sometimes. You know, one would assume that being the word of God, that he would have some kind of miraculous command of, you know, like words, like putting them together to form clear and concise sentences, communicating powerful and transcendent meaning. Instead, they often seem like clumsy and obtuse. By the time we get to this week's reading, Jesus has already been confusing me about the sheep and the shepherd, for ten verses, it's like he says he's the gatekeeper, then he says he's the gate, then he says he's the shepherd. I don't know who, which one he is. Now with verse 11 through 18 that we read today, it seems like he's trying again, taking another stab at the sheep-shepherd metaphor. This time, Jesus is for sure the shepherd. I know, because he repeats it several times. And he lays down his life for the sheep, which he also repeats several times. And he protects the sheep from the wolves. Now, what I'm trying to make sense of this week is this. Now, is this the lost sheep that Jesus lays his life down for? Like, what... Okay, see, the problem is, you know, of course, that the plural of sheep is sheep. Not sheeps or sheepses. It's sheep, plural, singular, sheep. Now, John's gospel is infamously been pressed into the service of converting and saving individuals. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, you know how that goes. And that verse right there is the, one, the verse that induces the sinner's prayer, which results in personal salvation. The salvation of one of the lost sheep. The story, however, though, of the shepherd leaving the 99 to go find the one lost sheep is not in the Gospel of John. John's Jesus seems much more concerned, not with this individual salvation, but John's Jesus, is concerned with the flock, even stating that there are others that aren't of this fold, but the Jesus in John is, is going to go and find them and bring them all together to form one big flock. John, Jesus in John is all about saving the flock, protecting the flock, not the lone sheep. Jesus is about bringing every sheep into the one true fold. It's like the antithesis of the one lost sheep praying the sinner's prayer and finding personal salvation. Is there even really any such thing as personal individual salvation? I mean, can you say, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church? Can you say, I'm into spirituality, but not religion? I mean, can you say, I don't go to church, but I'm a Christian. Really? I don't think so. In my evangelical days, a popular retort when somebody responded to being hounded by an individual salvation sales pitch with, well, of course I'm a Christian. I go to church. The individual salvation salesperson would respond by saying, just because you're in a garage, that doesn't make you a car. Zing. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, while zippy, I think the analogy is lacking. Going to church, being part of the church, being in the community of Christ followers is exactly what makes you a Christian. Being in the beloved community is what salvation looks like. That is what reconciliation is. We're not reconciled into some kind of good standing with the higher ups you know, ups up in heaven, we are reconciled to the community of God, the body of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about the institution of the church. Maybe I'm not even talking about the notion of the universal church. I'm talking about, like, this. This church. Or whatever community of faith you're invested in, or marginally, hopefully, hanging out in, or even flirting with. I'm talking about a group of people, gathered around a different narrative, a different narrative than runs the world. Not the narrative of economy and power and more, not the narrative of hired hands that runs when he sees the wolf coming, leaving the sheep to be torn apart. That is the narrative of calculated risk, of personal benefit, of profit and loss. Now, the community of faith gathers around this story where the shepherd does not count his life more valuable than that of the sheep. Where God gives God's self freely to the wolves, God gives God's self not only for the sheep, but also for the wolves, and calls us to do the same. Tells us profit and loss are illusion. We can live and love in the mercy, really. We can breathe and make plans in the mercy. can hold hands in the fold, and that there is no other, there is no them, that the flock is immeasurably large. We gather together to try to live out the narrative of God given to us in Jesus the Christ, even if all that means is coming here, even if all that means is coming here and sitting together to remember that another way is possible. After a week of being absorbed by the culture of money and power and self-centered struggle, we can come here and sit together and be reminded that we are not alone, we are not on our own, but we are part of a body that believes living in the mercy is possible. Even when we spend most of our time acting like the hired hand or the wolf, the story of Jesus is the story of God reconciling us to the community of God, reconciling us to each other, so that we are able to love each other and the world in another way. And when we fail, when it's not possible, when the kind of love, that kind of love is beyond our ability or our reach. You know, I guess I could dial back my critique of Psalm 23 a little bit. I mean, I guess if I do that, I can see that really it's a psalm of comfort. And it's nice to believe that even though the Lord cares for the flock, wants to save the whole flock, to reconcile us all together, that maybe part of what that looks like is that the Lord, that God, cares for me, takes care of me, keeps me safe. And more than that, wants good things for me. Good food and drink, rubbing oil on my head. All this sensual comfort to make me feel good. That's what this psalm's culturally constructed meaning really is. You know, I do a lot of funerals. I do funerals for people that don't have pastors, but who express a desire to have one perform their funeral or the families want to have one. And most of these, these funerals I do, the, the person only had a distant relationship with the church or with Christianity. And some have no connection with any religion at all, but just want something kind of spiritual at their funeral. And I would say that I read this psalm, Psalm 23, at more than half of these funerals. Some of the time people specifically ask for it. Other times, when I ask them if they'd like any scripture read, the only one they can think of. Is Psalm 23. So, and sometimes when they just want me to handle all the decisions, I just put it in there myself. Even times when people, the person who has died has no friends or family at all, and it's just me and the funeral director, I still read Psalm 23 which I know may be a little surprising given my critique of it as narcissistic, medieval, and maybe even a little silly and that it's culturally recontextualized um, and its meaning and interpretation is so pervasive that we can't recover any of its intended meaning. But read in a funeral service, when heard in a funeral service, no one is picturing the Lord protecting them, No one has seen the Lord help them to lay down in green pastures. Everyone has seen the person that they loved, the one who has died, the one that is gone, that they can no longer take care of or protect, their friend or spouse or father or mother or son or daughter, their child that they can no longer feed, no longer comfort. Everyone, even when it's just me and the funeral director, when the person who died had no one? I picture them because it's comforting. It's more than comforting, it's loving and merciful to believe that they are no longer alone or in pain or struggling. That the Lord is with them and the Lord is protecting them. And not only that, but the Lord is giving them good things, a place to sleep and good food and drink and rubbing their head. The Lord is their shepherd. It's good to know that they no longer want. I'm really, uh, have my pages out of order here. Has it happened to you? Yeah. 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 Well. <laughs> I did that part. Yeah, that part. hmm Yes. The part where I tied it all together was really fantastic. (laughs) I think the teddy bear did something with it. But it went a little something like this. When we have communion, we hold up the bread and we say that this is the body of Christ. But also this is the body of Christ. All of us gathered here. And when we go up for communion, that body is given to each of us individually. But it's given to us individually so that we are capable of being this body of Christ. It's not given for us alone. We're not reconciled for our own selves, but for this larger body of Christ. And this body of Christ so that we can bear witness to that mercy to the world, so that we can try and struggle to live out that other narrative together. So let's now remind ourselves of what's possible.